Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. upon it the light of intense and terrifying publicity. That can apply to both people and places. The combination of the power of the peace and threat can make even innocent details seem horrifyingly suspicious. The story we're going to tell you today is the story of a murder, but it's more than that, isn't it, Percy? Oh, yes, Clive. The case of Harold Greenwood was, I think, unique in modern times. Really was a man surrounded by such an atmosphere of guilt and yet, despite all this... Now, wait a minute, Percy. Don't tell too much of the story, because unlike some of the murder cases which we have discussed in this series, the story of Harold Greenwood has a surprise ending. We have called it the case of the family solicitor. lies about 12 miles beyond Martin, a small township in South Wales. It's quite a historical neighborhood, the famous castle and many medieval relics. However, when in 1920 the name to Wesley was spoken about in every other household in Britain, it was not because of the historical significance. It was because of the strange and tragical happenings in Rumsey House some 12 months before. Harold Greenwood was an elderly solicitor in practice in the town of Sonesley. His wife, Mabel, was liked and esteemed. She, together with her husband, were regular attendants at the local church. And together with their four children, two daughters and two sons, ranging from 21 to 15, were among the most respected inhabitants of Quebec. So it would seem on the surface. But beneath the surface, you might have heard other voices. What you say? I can't really like that, Mr. Greenwood. Why? I can't tell you, but I just don't like him. I'll be here now. That Mr. Greenwood, cruel to his wife, he is. Oh, I don't know for certain. But people talk, you know. Yes, people talk. A fact with which Harold Greenwood is eventually to become only too well acquainted. In June 1919, the family household of the Greenwoods consisted of Mr. and Mrs. Greenwood, Irene, their elder daughter, and Kenneth, their younger son. The two other children were away at boarding school. There was a staff of three, three women servants. For some considerable time, Mabel Greenwood's health had been unsatisfactory, a fact which was well known in the neighborhood. You know, Harold, dear, I've I wish you'd let me write to your brother and have a specialist down to examine you. I don't like worrying her. Oh, nonsense. Something should be done about it. I'll write today. I'll do it right away. Right he did. But for some reason, the letter was never posted. On Sunday, the 14th of June, the Greenwood family spent a leisurely morning. At half past twelve, Hannah Williams, 
One of the maid servants complained to the cook that Mr. Gardner was in her pantry and she could not get the silver to lay the table. But nevertheless, at one o'clock, the luncheon was served. It consisted of hot joint, vegetables, gooseberry tart, custard, and... Uh, oh, I almost forgot to mention. A bottle of burgundy. God of his great mercy, 
to take unto himself the soul of our dear sister here departed. We therefore commit her body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust. Yes, sir, so a case like that before. And that Mr. Greenwood going around just as ever. Oh, you wonder if there's justice on this earth. I was talking to Nurse Jones the other day, and she was saying again how scandalous it is about that Mrs. Greenwood dying and no inquiry, nothing. I don't like to say anything, but I ever tell that Mr. Greenwood is thinking of marrying again. The position of Mr. Harold Greenwood was uncomfortable in more ways than one. His wife had enjoyed an annual income, but unfortunately this did not pass to him on a debt. His solicitor's business was not sufficiently prosperous to maintain the considerable establishment at Rumsey House. Besides these financial worries, in a small village such as Kibwesley, it was impossible for him not to hear some of the rumors which were circulating. Remember, too, this was soon after the First World War, a time of sudden death and hurried marrying. Remembering all these things, it was not surprising that when a Miss Gladys Jones, a woman of about 30, came into Mr. Greenwood's life, it was not long before... My dear, I think you have known for some time my feelings for you, and therefore it cannot come as a surprise to you when I ask you to be my wife. But in marrying Miss Jones, Mr. Greenwood took another step towards the inevitable. He incurred the jealousy of a woman. You'll recall that a certain Dr. Griffiths, who lived just across the road from Rumsey House, had attended the first Mrs. Greenwood. Now, Dr. Griffiths had a sister, a close friend of Greenwood. And it was only on Tuesday, the very night before his wedding, that he told Miss Griffiths about it. This second marriage of Harold Greenwood gave rumor a new lease of life. And to add fuel to the fire, there was this jealousy of another woman. Miss Griffith. No good. I just can't stand it. Seeing that Mr. Greenwood walking around with his second wife and the first one only six months buried, I'm going to the police. Well, now, Nurse Jones, what evidence have you to substantiate your suspicions? Well, of course, it is easy that I've been nursing for 15 years and I've never seen a case like Mrs. Greenwood. He was so sudden like it. Then there was Mr. Greenwood. Oh, what about Mr. Greenwood? Well, that he did. He didn't seem at all perturbed when the poor lady died, getting married again so soon. Well, what else? Well, I talked to some of the servants. Hannah Williams now. He says that on the day that Mrs. Greenwood was taken ill, Mr. Greenwood was in the pantry and she thinks that... I think that's said in what other people think. But all the same, in view of the rumors circulating, I think we'd better make some inquiries. And so, on the 24th of October, police officers visited Mr. Greenwood and took a long statement from him. I can assure you, Superintendent, I am perfectly agreeable to giving you every help. I have certainly heard all these rumors, and not only for my own sake, but for the memory of my first wife, I should like to get the whole matter cleared up. This statement formed the basis of a report to the Home Office. And finally, in April 1920, the local coroner instructed that Mrs. Greenwood's remains should be exhumed for a post-mortem examination. The results of this examination were sent to Mr. Webster, official analyst of the Home Office. I have to report 
that I can discover no valvular disease or other natural cause to account for the death. However, I can positively report that present in all the organs examined was found an amount of 18 milligrams of arsenic. By this time, the national newspapers had started to take an interest in the case. And only the day after the post-mortem, Mr. Greenwood, in an interview with the Daily Mail, said, I am the victim of village gossip, of village scandal. And if you know Welsh village life, you will know what that means. It all started from the fact that four months after my first wife's death, I married again. That started the gossip. It is only fair to me to say that my first wife had suffered in health for at least two years before her death. Not only was her heart bad, but she also suffered from an internal disease. It was, however, from the heart attack that she died on June the 16th. No one, not even the doctor, thought that that attack would be fatal. The adjourned inquest was opened the following month, the anniversary of the poor woman's death. A great deal of evidence was brought forward. Eighteen witnesses were examined. And in particular, evidence was produced concerning the purchase of arsenic. Medical opinion considered that it... So far, this case has been handled entirely by the local police. That already Scotland Yard had a man on the spot. This officer reported to his superiors at the CID back in London that there was immense local bad feeling against Greenwood. And that was not the only trouble he found in Vanessa. One of the greatest difficulties I'm encountering is in connection with the evidence. So far, I've taken statements from 12 witnesses, and over half of them have the same name, Jones. I'm in constant fear of getting the Joneses mixed up. Greenwood was arrested this morning, and I saw him at the station. Uh, tell me, Inspector, what was the wording of the jury's finding? Mr. Greenwood, you might as well know it. It was this. We are unanimously of opinion that the death of the deceased, Mabel Greenwood, was caused by acute arsenical poisoning, as certified by Dr. Wilcox, and that the prison was administered by Harold Greenwood. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. The following morning, he was brought before the magistrates of Senesse and formally charged with the willful murder of his wife. Considering the future events, his father said comment that a large crowd that had assembled outside Senesse Town Hall to watch his departure booed him vigorously. Greenwood had to wait four and a half months for his trial at Camarthen Assizes. There was intense interest in this trial, and the little town of Camarthen was crammed to capacity by visitors, pressmen, and other concerned in the case. For seven sensational days, the eyes of the world were on this little town. As if the mysterious details of this case were not enough, there was the additional fact that beast for the defense of Harold Greenwood was the greatest British advocate of the day, Sir Edward Marshall Hall. The trial opened on Tuesday, the 2nd of November, 1920. <laughs> May it please your lordship, gentlemen of the jury, 
On the 16th of June, 1919, Mabel Greenwood, wife of the accused, died at Rumsey House in Weather at a quarter past three in the morning. On the 16th of June, 1920, at half past three in the afternoon, the accused, Harold Greenwood, was arrested and charged with willfully murdering her by administering arsenic to her. And it is on that charge he now stands before him. <coughs> this case is one which will command the closest and most prolonged attention, not only because it is the gravest charge known to the law, but also because of the nature of the evidence on which you are asked to find the accused man guilty. The crime of administering poison is almost always a crime done in secret. And the evidence with regard to it is, as a rule, indirect evidence, and not the evidence of eyewitnesses. <coughs> so it is in this case. Counsel for the prosecution then began to outline the various events centering around those dates, the 15th and 16th of June, a year before, leading up to that memorable Sunday meal. The lunch consisted of roast beef, gooseberry tart, and custard. And it was laid by the parlourmaid, Hannah Williams. When it was necessary for her to lay the luncheon, she requires a silver basket in order to put out spoons and forks, etc. When she got to the pantry, she saw that the accused was there. <clears throat> He remained there for about a quarter of an hour. And during that time, she waited. <coughs> she saw him go into the pantry, into the dining room. When Hannah Williams went to the cupboard in the dining room, she found what she thought was a bottle of wine with a red label. <coughs> she noticed in particular that it was not a full bottle, but that some wine had been taken out, and therefore, presumably, somebody had drunk some of the wine, or had emptied some of it out. She placed a bottle of wine before Mrs. Greenwood's seat at the dining table. She was present in the dining room during the luncheon, up to the time the sweets were eaten. And she will tell you that she, in fact, poured the wine from the bottle into Mrs. Greenwood's glass, and that Mrs. Greenwood drank it. At supper time, the wine bottle had gone. <laughs> A masterly moment of the trial was Sir Edward Marshall Hall's cross-examination of Hannah Williams, who, you'll remember, was one of the servants. Did you tell the police that it was a bottle of hot wine you put on the table for dinner on the 15th of June, and that it had on it a red label and a black print, and that you read on it the word pop? No. That you, sir? No. I suggest to you that it was labeled pop. Oh, no, it was port wine. Do you suggest that Mrs. Greenwood was in the habit of drinking port wine? Oh, no, sir. What did she drink? Burgundy. But port wine was there on this Sunday. I know you have said so. Do you know that Bourne is Burgundy? No, sir. What did you do after laying the table? I sounded the gong and Mr. Greenwood came in. Did Greenwood come in from the garden before you put the dinner on the table? He came in before I laid the table. I had to wait until he came out of the china pantry before going into fetch the silver. I was not supposed to go into the room when he was there. You mean to say that you have never seen Greenwood in the china pantry before? I've never seen him. I put it to you that almost every Sunday when he was at home, or after each time he was in the garden, he did go in there to wash his hands at the sink. No. Hundreds of times. Oh, no, sir. He used to go upstairs to wash his hands. 
Do you mean to say that you never saw Mr. Greenwood wash his hands at the sink in the china pantry? No, sir. It was a long way right up to the bathroom, was it not? Not that long. Are you telling us the truth? I cannot tell the truth. Mr. Greenwood is here on his life. Do you swear it was an unusual thing for him to go to the china pantry? You were getting rather excited just now and shouted at the witness. I have to see that the witnesses are not addressed in a vehement way. Why not? Because it confuses them. Why, it is my duty to be vehement. Another vital moment was the cross-examination of Nurse Jones. When you got to the house at 8 o'clock, had she got to bed then? I want you to be very careful over that. No. When you left at 9 o'clock, you were satisfied that she was not in a dangerous condition then? You would not have left her if you thought she was in a dangerous condition? I had to leave. Did you not say at the police court, I made the patient comfortable before I left at nine o'clock. I was obliged to go home. It was not a voluntary statement, and it is obviously in answer to a question. She has already said that if she knew the patient was in a dangerous condition, she would not have gone. Would you have left the patient if you had known? I have an aged father and a child of five to look after also. Miss Irene was there and Miss Phillips was there. If you had thought Mrs. Greenwood was really dangerously ill, would you have left? I had to. Well, I have to take your answer. Did Mrs. Greenwood say that the medicine caught her at the back of the throat? Mr. Greenwood told me so. Did Mr. Greenwood make a complaint to you? Mr. Greenwood said to me, Nurse, Mrs. Greenwood complains that the medicine caught her at the back of the throat. Did you taste the medicine yourself? Yes. It had no effect on me. And what quantity was the dose? Two teaspoons. It was soon after ten o'clock that I gave Mrs. Greenwood the second dose. I was not asking you. You must not pitch into this witness because she won't say exactly what you want her to say. All I am thinking is that if I raise my voice, she will raise her. I am not pitching into her. I rather wish your lordship had not used those words. I am dealing with the witness in a perfectly fair way. I am sure you are. But don't pitch into me now. I can trust you, Sir Edward, and you can trust me. One of the most telling witnesses for the defense was Irene Greenwood, the eldest daughter of the Greenwood family. She gave evidence that she, too, had drunk from the same bottle of Burgundy at lunch. Sir Edward's examination was complete, and after reviewing the whole evidence, he closed the defense in classic fashion. You must be satisfied that one of those scales the scale for prosecution has fallen before you can be satisfied that this man is guilty. I ask you to remember the scene in Othello where the jealous Moor made up his mind to kill Desdemona. Othello enters Desdemona's chamber, makes up his mind to kill her relentlessly, for he believes her to be unsafe. And seeing her lying there, he thinks of the effect of killing her as compared with putting out her light. And he says... Put out the light. And then he puts out the light. If I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore, should I repent me. But once put out thy light, thou cunning pattern of excelling nature, I know not where is that Promethean heat 
that can thy light renew? Are you, by your verdict, going to put out that light? Gentlemen of the jury, I demand at your hands the life and liberty of Harold Greenwood. And so Sir Edward Marshall Hall summed up his defense to the jury. The jury retired for some three hours and came back with a verdict of... Uh, not guilty. It was not until afterwards that it was pointed out that while returning a verdict of not guilty, the jury had passed a paper containing a fuller statement to the judge running as follows. We are satisfied on the evidence in this case that a dangerous dose of arsenic was administered to Mabel Greenwood on Sunday, the 15th of June, 1919. But we are not satisfied that this was the immediate cause of death. The evidence before us is insufficient and does not conclusively satisfy us as to how and by whom the arsenic was administered. We therefore return a verdict of not guilty. That was the case of Harold Greenwood. He was found innocent, but as Sir Edward Marshall Hall had pointed out, his life and career had been ruined by gossip. Eight years and two months from his sensational trial, a brief paragraph in a few daily journals announced the death on the 17th of January, 1929, at a little-known Herefordshire village of a man of 54, who, dogged by poverty, notoriety, and ill health, has lived there under the name of Pilkington. Harold Greenwood, whose name was once on everybody's lips, had made his last bow and exit from a world that had offered him little and deprived him of much. You know, Clive, this is one of the rare cases in this present series where we have told the story of someone who was not guilty. All the same, Scotland Yard is the servant of justice and not its master. Their job is to produce the evidence. And if on the basis of that evidence the prisoner is found not guilty, then justice has been done and the yard is satisfied. And in the case of the family solicitor, justice, I think, was done. Don't you agree? Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.